grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. I want to remind you, if you ever come to church and you don't have a Bible or forget your Bible, there's usually under the seats in front of you a black copy of a Bible. Feel free to grab there and turn with us to see this for yourself, Exodus chapter 2. But have you guys ever seen or heard of speed painting? Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting talent that some people have, a speed painter. They, they paint an entire picture in like two minutes. And, and as you watch them, if you ever look this up on YouTube or you see it on Facebook, you watch them paint the, the strokes of the brush and the colors they're just throwing on there. It seems totally random. Like it's just a big mess and you're trying to figure out what is this artist creating. And they get to the end and it still doesn't look like anything identifiable until they flip the painting upside down. And you see, wow, it's a perfectly painted picture of someone. And you realize that all those brush strokes and color choices that seemed random at the time were actually carefully selected. All of it was done with purpose and intentionality to create a beautiful work of art. I have found that following Jesus throughout life is a lot like that. There have been so many times when I look at the painting of my life and I'm trying to figure out what God is doing. There have been, even been times where I've been angry. Or disappointed with God because the picture didn't look like I thought it should. There have been times where I thought he was just randomly scribbling with no purpose. But it's always when I look back that I can see that God doesn't waste one drop of paint on the canvas of our lives. He doesn't miss a single brushstroke. And everything he does somehow works together to form a beautiful picture. And I need to be reminded often of this truth on the screen. God is always up to something. We rarely see it in the moment. We rarely understand why or how, and sometimes we may not even get the answer until heaven. But the Bible shows us that we can know without a doubt God is always up to something. And this is a truth we see clearly in the book of Exodus. Uh, we began walking through this second book of the Bible a couple weeks ago. And so far, the painting that we've seen for God's people looks like a big jumbled mess. If you remember, the story began back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, with God making some amazing promises to a man named Abraham. He promised to make him into a great nation and to use his family to bless all the other nations of the earth. And through those promises, God performed a miracle by giving Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. That son began this line of promised people who came to be called Israel. That name came from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who God renamed Israel and gave 12 sons. One of those sons, the favored son, was named Joseph. And through a series of traumatic events, Joseph ended up in Egypt. He ended up as a leader in Egypt. And God used Joseph to save his family by giving them food through a famine. As a result, the people of God began to multiply and grow. But here's where the painting began to get messy. We saw last week that because of God's blessing on his people and their multiplication as a nation, the new Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt at the time, was not happy. He was afraid of this growing group of people living in his land, so he made a plan. He enslaved the people, forced them into ruthless labor, and then attempted to keep them small by killing off all the baby boys born to the Israelite people. When the Hebrew midwives refused to play a part in this, Pharaoh issued a very wicked command. He commanded that every child boy born to an Israelite must be thrown into the Nile River. 
Now, you can imagine at this point that the Israelite people were looking at God's great promises to them and then looking at their current situation and asking the question, God, what are you doing? They were slaves, fearing for their lives, losing their own children. They were looking at the painting God was making and trying to figure out how any of this could make sense or turn out for good. Exodus chapter 2 is where the story begins to turn. It's where the painting starts to be flipped over and where we're reminded that God is always up to something. So let's walk through this chapter of the Bible piece by piece. And as we do, I want to show you three ways we see God working in this story. Start with me at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Here in chapter 2, to start out, we're zooming in on a specific Israelite family. It's a man and a woman from the house of Levi. That was the tribe they descended from, which will be a big deal later. Tuck that away. This couple has a baby boy, and notice what the mother says about her boy. Our translation in English says she saw that he was a fine child. But in the original language the Bible was written in, it says literally, she saw him that he was good. This is our first clue here, that there is something special about this particular child. Let's remember that Exodus is part two of the Pentateuch, which make up the first five books of the Bible. So the original audience reading this story would have heard these words, saw that he was good, and thought back to what? To Genesis, right? To creation. And we're going to see more of this creation language throughout Exodus. This is an echo of that story, giving us a clue that God is doing something new again. For the parents, the birth of a son was exciting but also terrifying. Remember, Pharaoh ordered all baby boys to be executed. The mother saw that her baby was good. She tried to save him. She hid him as long as she could, and then she crafted a plan. She built the basket for him, placed him inside, and set him into the Nile River, the very river which he should have been thrown in and killed. And yet she uses the river to save his life. His sister stood back on the bank to watch what would happen. And here's what happens next. Look at verses 5 through 10. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Here we have an amazing turn of events. The plan worked. The baby survived. He ended up being saved by the daughter of the very man who wanted him dead. The sister of the baby saw an opportunity and she risked her life by having someone nurse the baby. And who does she pick? 
Well, she picks the baby's mother, of course, and the mother gets paid to take care of her own son. But eventually she has to give the baby back. And this Hebrew child becomes a member of Pharaoh's own household. He would be raised in a palace by a ruler who wanted his people destroyed. Now, did Pharaoh know his daughter did this? Did she hide the identity of the baby? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know all the details or what it was like for this child to grow up as Egyptian royalty. One of the only details we're given here is the child's name. Notice who names the baby. It's Pharaoh's daughter. She named him Moses because she said she drew him out of the water. In Hebrew, the name Moses sounds like to draw out, which is packed with significance. As we know, God would one day draw out Moses and all of his people from another body of water. So here's the first way we see that God is always up to something. Number one, God is providing. God is providing. Now, if you're paying attention, hope you are, you may have noticed that God is not mentioned in these first ten verses. So how can we say that he's providing when he doesn't even seem to be present? Well, this is where it's helpful to understand the context of this story and the rest of the Bible. In Scripture, when God is about to intervene on behalf of his people and do something, he often does so by providing a miracle baby. Think about it. The birth of Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, Samson, John the Baptist, all of those are miraculous births. And then, of course, greatest of all, we have the virgin birth of Jesus. And here again in Exodus 2, we see God providing a baby who we know later would deliver and save his people. This tells us that the details surrounding the birth of Moses are not accidental or random. Moses' mom did not just so happen to place him in a basket in the river. Pharaoh's daughter did not just so happen to stumble upon that basket and feel pity for the baby. And Moses did not just so happen to grow up with a Hebrew ancestry and yet an Egyptian education. All of these are like brush strokes on a canvas, forming a picture that will become clearer as we go on. But we see here, in the midst of chaos and confusion for God's people, God is always up to something. Because God is providing for his people a savior. Let's look at the next part, Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, we know from the, book of Acts, from the book of Acts that we've jumped forward that Moses is about 40 years old at this point. He had lived an entire life of what we can only assume was privilege, growing up in the Pharaoh's palace. And this is the first time we see Moses identifying with his people, the Israelites. Now, we may wonder, at what point did Moses realize the Israelites were his people, that he was one of them? Did he know it all along and just ignore it? Did he discover this later in life? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But it seems at this point he has some sort of awareness of his people and the hardship they're dealing with. It says he, he saw their burdens, he saw their suffering, and he made a really rash decision to defend them by killing one of the Egyptians and trying to get away with it. He, he buried the body. Let's continue and see what happens, verse 13 through 15. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He, he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Again, Moses seems has this desire to help his people. He tried to break up a fight and solve a conflict, but they weren't having it. He discovered that his secret murder was no longer a secret. Not only did his people know, but it made it all the way to the top to Pharaoh. So Moses became a fugitive on the run. He took off, hid in the land of Midian. Watch this, verses 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses ended up at a well, which carries a lot of significance throughout the Pentateuch narratives. And again, we see his desire to help people, to do what's right. That seems to be Moses' heart, even though he doesn't quite know how to do it in the right way at this point. And it's here at the well that Moses meets a new family. He gets married and has a son. And look at what he names his son. Names in the Old Testament carried a lot of significance. And he named him Gershom. Sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for sojourner. Sojourner. This gives us some insight into what Moses thought about his situation. He saw himself as a foreigner, as a wanderer, lost and away from home. He was born a Hebrew, but the Israelites didn't accept him. He was raised Egyptian, but now they wanted to kill him. And here he is out in the middle of nowhere. And yet he starts a family. Verse 21 says he was content to dwell there. He seems to be kind of settling down in this new life. So so what is God up to here? And we have this great origin story at the beginning of the chapter where Moses is saved from death by Pharaoh's daughter. He's introduced as this miracle child. And he seems to be the chosen one that will save God's people from their awful situation. And yet here he is. Far away from God's people. Hiding, fearing for his life. And then he consigns himself to starting over as an unknown foreigner in a distant land. What is God doing? Well, despite the way things look, here's the second thing we see that God is up to. Number two, God is guiding. He's guiding. As we continue through Exodus, we'll see that none of these events in the life of Moses happened by accident. None of these things threw a wrench in God's plan. Moses couldn't mess up God's plan. Pharaoh couldn't mess up God's plan. God will use this season of Moses' life to prepare him to lead and shepherd God's people. He will use this period of exile to teach him who he is. And we'll see next week that God has brought Moses out to the middle of nowhere so he can get his attention. This seemingly random place is exactly the place where God wants Moses to be because it's the place where he will encounter God. It's another theme we see throughout the Bible. It's the seemingly insignificant period of preparation before someone is used by God to do great things. A time where God guides someone through this season of waiting. Think about it. When Abraham received the promise that he would have a son, he waited 25 years before Isaac was born. When David was anointed king by Samuel, it was 15 years before he took the throne. 
And even Jesus waited 30 years before he was baptized and began his public ministry. We're going to see the same thing in the life of Moses. The book of Acts tells us that Moses, as a 40-year-old, spent the next 40 years in the wilderness of Midian as a shepherd and a goat herder. That's 40 years before he heard from God and received any special call in his life. 40 years before he knew what God wanted him to do. 40 years, and yet this season of Moses' life was not wasted. He was preparing the deliverer of his people. He was working in the waiting. As Moses thought he was lost and forgotten, God was guiding him. Because God is always up to something. Let's look at the last part, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Chapter ends by taking us back to Egypt. The Pharaoh of that time had died. And God's people continued to suffer under the yoke of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry reached to the Lord. Just when all hope seemed lost, here's where everything changes. God heard their groaning. He saw his people suffering. He knew their pain. And here's the key word. God remembered. That's the third way we see that God is up to something in this story. Number three, God is remembering. Now, this word can be a bit misleading for us because when you and I remember something, it means we forgot it, which I do a lot. (laughs) And since we know that God is all-knowing, that means he cannot forget. Right? There's nothing for God to remember because all things are always known by him. That's what we mean when we say God is omniscient. So when the Bible says that God remembers, it's a reminder for us that he has not forgotten his promises and that he's about to act on them. It's a sign that he's about to do something. It's a reminder that God will do what he said he will do. And here in these verses, the promise that God's going to act on is his covenant with Abraham. If you are here last week, I I talked a lot about how important this theme of a covenant is throughout the Bible. Uh, That word covenant simply means a chosen agreement between two parties to keep certain promises together. The closest thing we know of a covenant today is the covenant of marriage. Two people, a man and a woman, willingly choose to form a new relationship and keep promises to one another for life. We talked last week about the significance of God's covenant with Abraham. That covenant is really the entire basis of the book of Exodus. We said earlier, in that covenant, God promised that he would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, that he'd give them a special land, and that he would use them to bless all the other nations on the earth. And in the ancient world, when a covenant was agreed to, it was called cutting a covenant. Cutting a covenant. Because the two parties, what they would do is they would literally take animals or sacrifices, they would cut them in half and lay them on the ground apart, and they would walk between the halves of the animals. Essentially saying to each other that, hey, if I break this covenant, may this be done to me as it's been done to these animals. It was a way to make it serious, to add consequences. But if you go back to the story when God made the covenant with Abraham, something really unique happened. When it came time to walk between the animal halves, God was the only one who passed through. He didn't ask Abraham to walk through. He did that to demonstrate that the entirety of the covenant would be up to him. 
All Abraham had to do was believe and trust. God was solely responsible for keeping this covenant and the relationship with his people, no matter what happened, no matter how far they strayed. God was saying that he would not give up on them. And here we see that promise in action. After 400 years of slavery, God did not forget his people and the promises he made to them. He made a covenant to be their God and to make them his people. And what he's about to do in this story, rescuing them out of slavery, will take place on the basis of those covenant promises. So, despite how things seemed for Israel, despite their suffering and their doubts, God was still working. He was up to something. And as his people today, the same thing is true for us. Did you know that if you're a Christian, we too have a covenant with God? The Bible calls the covenant today that we Jesus followers have with God the new covenant. What is that? What is the new covenant? Well, it's simply God's promise to save all those who trust in him through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. So in the moment you trust in Jesus and you become saved, you receive those covenant promises. And you become God's child forever. And it's this covenant that we have with God that is the covenant that all the others point to. Because it's a covenant made possible by God's own son. Hebrews 8.6 says this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. So you see, the new covenant is mediated by Jesus, meaning it's, it's him that makes this relationship with God possible. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead on our behalf. So Jesus makes this covenant, this relationship with God possible. Just like with Abraham, our covenant, our relationship with God, it's not based on our ability to do the right things or to measure up to some standard. But God walked between the broken halves, not of an animal, but of his own son. And he will keep the covenant even when we fail. So here's what all this means. I know it's a lot of theological talk about covenants, but man, this is so important. This means that we can be confident. We can know without a doubt that if you have Jesus, God is with you. God is for you. And God is always up to something in your life because of what he's done in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Man, think of all the promises of God throughout the Bible. All of those promises are true for those who know Jesus. That means if you follow him, you never have to doubt. You never have to wonder if God loves you, if he's with you, if he's working in your life. The answer is always yes. God is always up to something. And just to hammer this point home, let me hit those three points again to show that God is always up to something for Jesus followers. First, we see through Jesus, God is providing. Friends, God has already provided the solution to your biggest problem. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem is our sin and our rebellion against God. And one of the ways the Bible describes our sin problem is with the imagery of slavery. As sinners, apart from God, it says we're slaves to sin. We're bound, unable to, to free ourselves or to get to God. So just as the Hebrews were slaves, bound, facing death, so were we. And just as God raised up a deliverer for his people in Exodus, he has provided a deliverer for us too. That's one of the things we'll see throughout Exodus 
is that Moses, as the redeemer and savior of God's people, points us to the ultimate redeemer and savior who is Jesus Christ. God so loved us that he gave his own son. He sent him to the cross, pouring out the judgment for my sin and your sin on him instead of on us. Also that we could come to God in a covenant relationship. So friend, listen to me. If you ever wonder if God loves you, just look to the cross. Remember what Jesus has done for you. This is the point Paul makes in Romans 8.32. He says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave Jesus up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying if God already provided for you his own son, don't you think he'll take care of the rest of the details in your life? Jesus is the proof that God will give you everything you need. Through Jesus, God provides. Second, we see that through Jesus, God is guiding If God was guiding his people even while they spent 400 years in slavery, if God was guiding Moses as Pharaoh tried to take him out multiple times and ended up in the wilderness for 40 years, if God was guiding his son even in his death to save his people, then don't you think he can guide you through whatever your life brings? Look, all of us are going to experience pain and suffering and difficulty. Some of us in this room, have dealt with deep wounds that we can't even imagine. Some of us have caused those wounds in others. And yet some way, somehow, God has promised to redeem every pain, every loss, every mistake. And I don't have all the answers. We live in a messed up world, and I'm one of the people messing it up. (laughs) Things are broken, but God is sorting through the pieces and putting it all back together. We see that in the life of Moses. Moses was a murderer. Did you catch that part where he got mad and killed a man and tried to cover it up? Have any of you ever done that? Don't raise your hand. We don't need to know. My point is, this is the guy. This is the guy that God chooses to lead his people out of Egypt. This is the guy he wants and who becomes one of the top five people in the whole Bible. God redeemed Moses and his mistakes to accomplish his good and perfect plan. And the same thing is true for you. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. No matter how bad or hopeless or dark things get. No matter how confusing or messy or just plain boring your life may seem. If you know Jesus, God has promised to work in your life for good and to make you more like his son. He predestined before you were even born to make that true. Through Jesus, God is guiding. And lastly, through Jesus, God is remembering. Listen to me. Somebody needs to hear this today. God has not forgotten about you. God has not forgotten about you. I know life did not turn out the way you thought it would. I know you've often wondered why God put you on this planet. I know you've come close to completely giving up on faith, maybe even on your life. You need to know God has not forgotten you. The covenant he made with you will not be broken because it's been signed by the blood of his son. And look, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying life will magically get better if you just have enough faith. That's not true. 
look, the pain may not go away. The suffering may not cease in this life. In fact, it may get worse. But God is working through all that, and he wants to use your circumstances to glorify him and to bless other people. And there are so many things we will not understand in this life. Why did God leave his people in slavery for 400 years? That's a long time. Why did God allow some of these awful things to happen in my life? I don't know. But I believe without a doubt in my mind that one day when we get to eternity, we will see and we'll be relieved to know that God was always up to something. Would you pray with me?